It seems impulsive to us when a child or an adult takes their own life because we probably didn't really see it coming. But the person who's feeling suicidal has seen it coming for quite some time. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. I have Jennifer Wright Berryman in the studio today. Uh, she is a PhD in social work and epidemiology. Yeah, that's my PhD minor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, she's also an assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati, uh, where you teach mental health policy mm-hmm. and are a badass researcher. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm thanks. looking at this 13-page curriculum vitae that outlines <laughs> all the work that you've done and articles and awards and speaking engagements and it's truly remarkable so can i get uh, a can i get a name tag that says badass research yeah, absolutely <laughs> yeah that probably doesn't come up much is but it's for this subject matter uh, in in the work that you do uh, thank you because you're shedding light on a, a subject that we'll get into but um, it seems like your interest is you are a suicide suicideologist 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 yeah but that's your main subject matter yes um especially with prevention and and young people right yeah Yeah. my main population is children youth adolescents and young adults yeah yeah so what got you interested in the the subject and the work sure so um I've always been in my entire professional life, I've always been in mental health. Um, But just about five to six years ago, my local community, I live in southern Indiana, I commute over to Cincinnati. Um, We lost three teens to suicide in about 14 months, but two of those teens died within a couple of weeks of each other, and they were all my daughter's age. And so my daughter basically said, you know, Mom, what can we do? I don't want to lose any more of my friends, and I feel like you know, you're a social worker, you should know what to do. So uh, I knew uh, from having worked in emergency rooms and responding to suicide crises that um, it's still very much um, a topic that is in the shadows. People aren't talking about it. People are afraid to talk about it because they believe that if they do, they're going to be planting seeds in people's heads that it's a good idea to solve your problems by taking your life. We know that to be untrue in the field, but the only way to help people understand that we need to talk about it is uh, to teach them that. And so I started by uh, uh, in sort of just a social media open forum Facebook group, which still has about 1,200 members. And um, it's just a, a way for people to get information that is reliable um, and to talk to each other and tell stories and support each other um, on the topic of suicide, suicide prevention. So uh, from that, I started reading the research and became involved in some programming. And then it really spun into a full-time. So I, I made a huge shift from working primarily in adult mental health research to suicide research with children and adolescents. So Amazing. So you do a lot of work, uh, and we'll talk about some of your programs, but uh, in schools and, again, with young people, right. um, building programs around suicide, education, prevention. But what I think is really cool is you're not only working with faculty and counselors and nurses, but getting kids 
peer-to-peer right education educating each other being sounding boards for each other because that's when something like that happens man that is a devastating thing and i think most people like you said want to go inward and shut it out and say this we're not talking about this um so i i just think um and so dovetailing off that with all the stuff that you've done are there things that you like to highlight some programs that you've been involved with that have stood out to you yeah, I, I I personally have been um, involved in, in two um, major uh, initiatives. Uh, the first is Hope Squad, which I think is um, most of my work is related to a school-based peer-to-peer suicide prevention program that is in uh, about 600 schools across the country um, and, and growing very rapidly. And uh, I'm the national lead researcher for that program, so I collect and analyze data to um, sort of discover the effectiveness and how we can tweak the program and make it better. Um, but I also get to work directly with the kids in the program. I get to do implementation in schools. I go and meet with these kids, and they are absolutely phenomenal human beings. I know that um, you talk about addiction and recovery on your podcast. And there's a lot of lines that we can draw that are similar between recovering in terms of an addiction and recovery in terms of emotional health as well. And so uh, when when someone who um, has an addiction feels more comfortable talking to someone else who is in recovery, um, you know, you can call that many things, um, but it's a peer, essentially it's a peer model, right? Um, it's you, you have walked in some shoes that know this path. Kids are the same way. So kids... Uh, have walked in each other's shoes. They've dealt with the anxiety of sports and academics and relationships and parents or families and divorce and, and 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 addiction and all the things that kids go through. They are more comfortable telling each other than going right to an adult. And the same is true for feeling suicidal. Um, there's so much shame around feeling suicidal that um, a kid is almost always going to tell another kid. So who better to empower and train and coach and deploy than kids themselves in the milieu of school to be able to identify uh, other peers at risk. And being able to, to, just teaching them to be able to talk to each other, especially boys, because I struggle with mental health my entire life, anxiety, depression, and and I didn't know how to look at my friend and say, hey man, like I'm hurting bad. Yeah. So the fact that this is getting out in the open, and I think mental health stigma i think it's slowly getting better but but empowering kids to you know have and i think a lot of schools are having mental health counselors put in to work with guidance counselors which you know if you need a mental health day you take a mental health day so i mean yeah the the work in schools we're seeing some changes um my major concern having been in the mental health field and with the idea that putting mental health practitioners in schools, although it's a good idea, it's not going to meet the need in a comprehensive way. So a lot of uh, kids are struggling with um, levels of anxiety and stress. And you'll hear terms like toxic stress and, um, and, and just life situations that aren't necessarily diagnosable mental illnesses. They are struggles. They are emotional health issues that if we rely on the mental health, the institution of mental health, 
whether it be therapists or psychiatrists or psychiatric nurses to take care of the problem, then we're just going to have lines and lines and lines and lines of kids waiting to see somebody. Um, so my one of my core values uh, as a suicidologist and a mental health practitioner is to train the public, um, whether it be kids themselves, parents, friends, neighbors, pastors, or people at churches, train anyone who will listen on just some really easy steps and concepts about how to engage someone in their emotional health, how to um, do some self-care, how to help each other out. Um, because again, if we rely on the mental health system to, to take care of all of our emotional health problems, we are going to be in a constant deficit and a crisis. Uh, so we got, and I think social emotional learning in schools, that, that kind of curriculum is really going to be a helpful tool for our kids. Um, but we have to sort of like pull all this together. Um, there are a lot of schools that still aren't doing any sort of programming, and so there's still a lot of work to do. But it's a good step. It like, is. You know, it the, is. The, We're making progress. The, yeah. Absolutely. The, the, uh, you know, the, the thought is there, and the, the rec, you know, people are recognizing yeah. the fact that it needs to be addressed. Yes. So I, I agree with you. Uh, t tweaks, and but uh, getting it nationwide as part of a curriculum is is huge. So. Yeah. Um, on one thing you just said, and I think part of of your work is engaging parents. Yes. Because kids need to be educated at school mm -hmm. and be immersed there. But when they come home, right. they need to know that they're loved, that their parents, not that they have to be experts in right. mental health and, and suicide, but right. that their kids can talk to them. So talk a little bit about the importance of parents and yeah so like you mentioned we need some continuous flow of support from schools to um, coaches to parents to drama teachers to I mean you know everywhere that kids spend their time if there is someone who they trust and who they can talk to um, who could help them in a time of crisis then we are basically creating a community that cares about our kids and it's a seamless approach to um, asking a child, you know, how are you doing? Are you okay? How's your heart feeling? How are your emotions? You know, we, we're very comfortable asking kids about physical health, right? If we see them sniffling or coughing or if they're running a fever, you know, it, we just we go right into action. We don't think about it. We just go right into that care approach. Um, but if a kiddo is uh, suffering from anxiety or anxiousness or stress or sadness or any emotional, you know, we, we're sort of, um, we don't know what to do. And so we may, we may try to comfort, but we don't know what actions to actually take to help, help the child live through that or move through that. So um, I think training parents um, and community members is a huge step. Um, Dr. Hudnell, the man who created Hope Squad, says uh, it takes a village to raise a child, but it takes a community to save one. And so um, being able to, uh, at the community level, um, empower people with enough knowledge and enough skills to even say something like this. I know we don't know each other very well. Let's say it's an adult at school who doesn't know a child very well or adult in the community, at the church, whatever. I don't, I don't know you very well, and I may not have the perfect things to say. I may not know exactly the right thing to say, but I want you to know that you're not alone and that you don't have to suffer alone and that no one has to suffer alone and that I'll be here to listen and be present with you. I won't hug you if you don't want me to, but I will provide you with 
um, you know, a presence, someone that makes you feel like, you know, you don't have to walk through this darkness alone. And that's just a really huge, you know, that's huge for a kid. Um, And so it, it might be a parent, but sometimes parents struggle to to parent. <laughs> and so it could be another trusted adult. It could be an aunt or grandparent, or it could be a non-family member. I know that a lot of my um, daughter's friends would come to our house um, to, to crumble, you know, and to lie on the floor and sob when um, there was a breakup or when there was something going on. And it wasn't because their parents didn't love them. They did. It's just that they trusted um, an, a, another wise or, or trusted person to uh, work with them through their emotional health needs. And, and so I think um, parents are all capable and have a lot of desire to do that. They just need some real simple um, scripting and ideas and ways to approach these things. And kids are, for the majority of their time, they're talked to. Yeah, that's a good point. Instead of listened to. Yeah. So especially with something like this that's heavy, yeah. Um, and you and you mentioned that they're awesome human beings. Uh, the kids, that, a lot of the kids that you've worked with, do they take to this pretty quickly? When it, this idea of hope and you, you can talk to me and yeah, um, we just had a uh, big Hope Squad conference just a couple of weeks ago. And had uh, 550 of our Hope Squad members were there. And it was amazing to see all these kids who have basically said, I will do this. I will be the one who will who will talk to you in your darkest moments, most vulnerable times when you're feeling ashamed. And I will be with you. And I will, um, if you're at risk, I will make sure you get to a trusted adult. They accept this responsibility with courage and with honor. And one of the reasons for that is because they've already been those kids that someone was talking to about their distress or about their despair, but they weren't trained yet to know how to respond. So they were doing the best they could. Now all these kids are trained. They know exactly how to operate when they recognize distress and appear. Um, It's sort of like... If your neighbor's house is on fire and you're not a firefighter, you have the intuition and and the inclination to run down there and see what you can do to help. But a trained firefighter knows how to go in the house and and rescue with and minimize their own damage and the damage of, you know. And so there's a huge difference between someone who uh, has the desire to help and wants to help and someone who's trained to help. So um, when we train these Hope Squad members, Uh, they become empowered to do this intentional outreach. Instead of being passive, which is what they used to be, helpers who would be on receiving ends of messages or social media or whatever, now they look for it. They actually have a radar up to see if someone's in distress, they get activated, and they know what to do. Um, And they also then train the kids in their school to do the same thing. So the Hope Squad membership doesn't stop at just those kids who are on the Hope Squad. They spend a lot of time educating, lifting up their peers, encouraging their peers, but also educating them on the risk factors and warning signs for suicide, how to help a friend, how to get to a trusted adult. All of those things are incorporated in the program. So it's really, it's the idea is that it spreads and changes the whole culture of a school around help seeking. You mentioned earlier boys and men. Um, our boys die four times more often than girls to suicide. Um, this crisis is for two reasons, the first of which we live in a culture of shame around men expressing their emotions. 
Uh, society still expects men to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and figure it out because that's what men do. And that is such that's that's killing our men is what it's doing. Um, some people may call it toxic masculinity. Some people call it other things. I basically just call it cultural shame. We have to shift that culture where no matter your gender, no matter what your sort of characteristics are, how you identify yourself, that you can feel safe you know, expressing yourself and how you're feeling on the inside. The second reason is that men more often than women use guns and um, access to firearms for our men uh, in time of crisis is uh, one of the lowest hanging fruit of ways we can prevent suicide is to um, remove weapons from the home when we know our loved one is in distress. So there's a couple extra little. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and kids, this you know, millennials and whatever this generation's called get a hard time, yeah. but they've you know, they were the millennials were the first ones to be immersed with social media, yeah. and they're they're growing up through a quagmire of just shit and mm -hmm. stress mm -hmm. and just intense feelings of needing to be wanted and all that stuff. So uh, my point is that they're still very receptive, responsible way more responsible and open-minded than I would have been. You know, my niece and nephew are 18 and 16 and they found out about my mental health and addiction issues four years ago, you know, and they're sending me these messages saying, I love you. I'm so proud of you. Congratulations on four years. And you're such an inspiration keeping me sober and keep, you know, That's like awesome. talking to me yeah. like, a straight-up adult, yeah. you know? So uh, I think uh, pulling the curtain back on the fact that they're not little shits. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're human beings that need as much care, if not more care, yeah. these days. Yeah, but uh, you're highlighting that. You're, you're highlighting that concept of tribe, right? So they're part of your tribe, and they support you in your recovery. And if, and if it, the tables are turned and one of those nieces or nephews or children in your family needed your emotional support, you would turn around and support them. And I, I think that is one of the most important protective factors that we know um, keeps people from dying by suicide is having a sense of connectedness and belongingness to whether it's your family tribe, your community tribe, your, your religious, you know, whatever your tribe is, when you feel connected, your chance of dying from suicide goes way down. Um, and it's not just people who, I mean, I think people conflate that, unfortunately, with isolation. People are isolated sometimes, but sometimes people have loved ones in their life, they just feel isolated, because their emotional distress is tricking them into believing that those people don't care and that they're just a burden. Um, and and the, their loved ones would say, no way, you're never a burden. I love you. I would do anything for you. Um, but they need that reminding and and they need it when they're in distress and also when they're not in distress. So we have to send constant messages of love and support to each other. Um, kindness in a general sense is a way to prevent suicide. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so let's get into the you know, the, the meat of your research and, sure. and, and just the practicality of this. So uh, there's peer pressure, sadness, stress, but really at the core, what can cause a level of despair and confusion to a young person where this seems like 
the only option. The only option, yeah. Uh, if you kept listing um, factor after factor, then you'd get closer to the truth. So um, there are so many risk factors that um, e- the combination of the ris- those risk factors is almost impossible to predict uh, mapping those onto a moment where someone decides, you know, I'm going to take my own life. So we try to upstream the problem where we're trying to resolve things like hate toward our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, or um, trying to provide recovery services to our youth who are addicted. I mean, all of those things we know are risk factors for suicide, um, but it's when a young person, um, the moment that they tip from despair into this is, you know, what I'm going to do, is, is, you know, it's this sort of perfect storm of all of these things where they feel like they're, they're, emotional pain is irreversible now. Like there's there's nothing that's going to help me. Um, and I, I, I don't have the resources. And, you know, our, our young people, especially uh, their frontal lobes aren't developed yet. They don't have the executive functioning to um, draw upon to make a different decision. And so sometimes they may go to suicide as uh, the option to resolve all of their problems, not because they don't have other options, but because they can't conceive of what those are. They don't know how to access them or because they're just young, they don't actually have access. They logistically don't have access. Um, and so they, they, they might become increasingly more desperate than an adult would because they literally don't have a way to drive anywhere to do anything. So they find themselves at home just continuing to sink into their despair. So, um, and, on, and on that, yeah, the, the fact that they're not fully mature brain right. development, right. Um, oftentimes is just a quick impulsive feeling where they might not even want to do this, but they, it happens and instantaneously, obviously, it's disaster. I mean, is yeah. it? Does that make uh, sense? There's really interestingly two fields of thought around impulsivity and suicide, and it does differ. It does differ between age groups. Um, it seems impulsive to us when a child or an adult takes their own life because we probably didn't really see it coming, but the person who's feeling suicidal has seen it coming for quite some time, um, and so they. Uh, have thought about it. They have made a plan. They have uh, set a date. Uh, They have set some circumstances or consequences for other people that if something, if this doesn't happen or this doesn't happen, then I genuinely don't have any reasons to live. And during that period of time, and it could be very short or longer, again, depending on the situation, if no one knows to intervene, right, because they're hiding these things so well, then they can't change their mind. So um, a lot of the research now really looks at that that short window of time between the time I'm going to do it and they have the lethal mean, you know, uh, because things like stockpiling pills or getting an access to a gun, sometimes that takes time. And so that planning process can actually consume some time. But it could be hours. It could be something like two hours between the time they've absolutely concretely made the decision, I'm going to do it, and and they die. Um, And that causes, it's cause for alarm, of course, because you think that's actually the window of time I have to swiftly save a life. 
Um, so a lot of us in in this field, we we work really really hard to sort of look at these risk factors and um, remove barriers to care, and to identify kids uh, who are increasing in their distress and despair and frustration and. Per- perturbance and, you know, all these sort of feelings that we associate with increasing uh, suicidality um, so that um, they don't ever get to that point of making a plan or accessing a lethal mean. And and it's not the frail, sad person that's walking through the halls at school that does this. It is a smiling, outgoing person that inside is dead. The, yeah, and, and, so or, or that, dark, just or dark, fe- yeah, right. just feeling really, really dark. No, you've made a really good point there. I think that sometimes the media uh, or television or movies portray someone who is suicidal um, as someone who is just constantly d- distressed or tearful or upset. Um, and oftentimes it's someone who's very, very good at masking. Um, their emotions at fitting into the milieu undiscovered, um, which is why um, we have to be a much, I call it community health um, because we don't have to all be experts to be able to reach out and save a life. Um, but I think that's what makes it so important that we are, that we get to a place where the culture changes and we can just ask each other about our uh, emotional health. Because once we start, intervening way upstream where we're openly talking about emotional health, then people don't, they don't, their emotional health doesn't devolve. And then they don't arrive at this place of, of, of even having a suicidal thought. So that's, that's what I'm aiming for. Um, But yeah, people paint this picture that we're going to be able to see someone suicidal a million miles away because they look suicidal, like there's some look to suicidal, you know, being suicidal, but, but really there's not. I mean, Robin Williams is, is an example that people bring up a lot because I, I, I I don't even know anyone who he didn't make laugh, (laughs) you know, I mean, he, he was uh, a a phenomenal actor and, and comedian. And he made so many people laugh and he lifted so many people up and, and he was living in such, you know, in such despair. Um, and when he, uh, died, uh, people were caught between confusion and sadness. And we see increases in suicide rates when someone famous dies and there's just the, yeah. So that's a real thing. Um, when you are living in despair yourself And you may have your own suicidal thoughts. And every time you turn on the radio, every time you read the newspaper or the magazines, you see Robin Williams died, Robin Williams died, Robin Williams killed himself, Robin Williams, you know, you're thinking, well, if Robin Williams can't make it, what can I do? And so when we report on suicide in the media, we have to balance the message with here is what you can do if you are also feeling this way. And I would prefer, you know, they always stick it at the end of the, <laughs> at the end of the article or the end of the story. I would prefer for uh, every news story that's going to report on some famous person's suicide to say, we're getting you to report about someone's suicide. And we want you to know that if you're feeling suicidal, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. So <laughs> right. I threw that in there on purpose. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> and, and looking at, at your work, I mean, you actually did specific research and writings about Robin Williams and and the fact that there was an uptick, which I had in my notes to talk about. Uh, yeah. So it, let's just hit that again. Okay. If I would think 
that a celebrity or somebody that has reach commit suicide, that that would be a deterrent. But you're saying that if we saw an uptick, right? Go through that again because that just well, seems. Well, I'm I'm going to put this back on you for just a second because this is really helpful. When you say I see that as a deterrent, explain that to me. I don't know because that, that was heavy for me. Okay. I think it was heavy for a lot of people because yeah. he was like the guy. You he know? was so cool. Yeah. I don't know. I I would think of it that okay. I can't believe that this popular rich person did this. I don't want to end up like that. I, and I don't know. I don't know my rationale. I don't know sure, my rationale sure, for this, sure. but okay. I don't know. That's what I was, when I read in your research, th- that specific line that there was an uptick, yeah. I was just interested. Yeah. So there's, there's this phenomenon that some people will call contagion. Um, it's actually an effect that's been studied widely. Um, and it's very closely tied to media reporting on suicide. Um, in fact, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the um, Suicide Prevention Resource Center have both put forth guidelines around the media reporting on suicide because of this phenomenon of contagion, which is to say that when someone like Robin Williams, Marilyn Monroe, Chester Bennington, or Chris Cornell, or Kate Spade, or Anthony Bourdain, or you, I mean, we have so many people that have died from suicide that people looked up to, if you will. And um, what happens a lot of times is people who are living in despair at the time of the death of someone who is uh, famous, and they 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 are constantly barraged by that message of so-and-so took their own life, so-and-so took their own life, so-and-so took their own life. If I'm living in despair, I might think to myself, well, gosh, if Robin Williams with his amazing talent and money, if he can't make it, what makes me think I can? I get it. So, so that's one way to look at it. Um, another way to look at it is that um, – you know, uh, the more I hear that message, the more it normalizes for me, right? So um, the media doesn't come out and say, it's okay, suicide's a good thing. They don't do that. But by not reporting it in a way that's balanced, then the message is constantly, someone kill themselves, someone kill themselves. It's not, we want you to live we're reporting this suicide because it's news, but we want you to live. And so here's what we want you to do if you're listening to this story right now and you're feeling suicidal. And there's only half of that being reported right now, which is so-and-so killed themselves. Yeah, only half the story. It's you, you not know, balanced. It, it, yeah. Right? And, you know, somebody told me once, if it bleeds, it reads. Oh, and, you interesting. Know, I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's all right. you hear. Right, You, you right. get on and, and who's rushing to get the first story about who died. right. Right. And how they died and got murdered, or you know what right. I mean. So right, and and how many stories do we hear about um, famous people who attempted, lived, and and are in recovery with their emotional health, and um, and 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 are making it, you know, and they're managing, and maybe they struggle because people struggle still. We know every day can be a struggle. Um, where are those stories? You know, those stories happen on feel good days like mental health awareness or yeah, something. One day, but they right. are not happening. Three sixty five. You know, it's not uh, newsworthy apparently. And yeah. so, you know, well, hopefully, like the work that's being done on the ground, like you're doing, 
and Hope Squad and schools yeah. that hopefully it'll bubble up eventually to yeah. the fact that we need to. I hope so. I, I get asked the, to do interviews a lot when something bad happens. I would, but but you called me to do an interview, and and nothing bad is right now, to my knowledge, is happening. So that's really good. That's when we we need to be talking about it in a very consistent way. Yeah, and awareness. It, it's that's because right. Because it's you know I have an eleven year old daughter and a ten year old daughter. Okay. And one of them has anxiety and yeah. ADD, and it's and social media, which I want to talk about, yeah. scares me to death. Yeah. Because it's awful. Right. You know, it's instant gratification. And, and I've said this before on the show, but something as small as being slighted, especially yeah. girls. Yeah. I talked about boys not being open up, but girls are mean to each other. Yeah. Especially adolescents. Yeah. You know, and if do you want to hang out Friday night, no, I can't hang out. And then an hour later, they're taking TikToks at Target. Yeah. With a group and they're not, you know, yeah, they're it's not like, invited. man, yeah. you know, talk about yeah. the, the underdeveloped brain. That's like, man. That right. everything's over if I wasn't invited to that particular thing. Right. So just briefly, because we could talk about social media all day. I, I've that... got a kind of a short, I've got okay, a kind yeah, of short please. response to that. Lay, lay I, so me. I did a TEDx a long, well, it feels like a long time ago now. And one of the awesome. things, <laughs> it's, I call it the minor leagues because it no, wasn't the cares, main TED man? That's like the ultimate. <laughs> um, one of the things I talk about in my TEDx was um, that we have to prepare our kids for emotional pain. So, and that is no, that becomes more and more and more relevant every single day. So we have to start telling our kids as soon as we can, your feelings will be hurt. <laughs> your feelings will be hurt through social media. They will be hurt through face-to-face -face interactions with your friends. They will be hurt when you don't make the team or you don't get the, the part in the play. You don't get the solo in the choir. You don't get an A on your test or you get a D, your feelings will be hurt. You will fail. You will have times that you are in feeling like you're in the gutter. And here is what I want you to do when you're feeling that way. I don't want you to lash out. I don't want you to get on social media and and lash out because that, you know, this is what happens when that, you know, give our kids tools, prepare them and give them tools, right? So it's like, my daughter went to college and, you know, I'm thinking, should I teach her how to change her own tire or at least access someone who can help her change her tire? Should she be on the interstate? I mean, it feels like, you know, every day sorts of – but we have got to prepare our kids for these emotional pain situations because if they don't know how to handle them, they will pile up. And it will be a death by a thousand cuts. So whether it's social media or anything else related to how our kids can get hurt, we've got to prepare them for it and give them tools to get through it. Because there's only one way to get through it, and that is to move through it. And and then you're on the other side of it. Yeah. And this is where the millennial and I'm not bashing parenting because I'm a parent of three. You seem uh, young to me, Trevor. Are you, are you a millennial though? No, I'm you're, right. I was 78. I was okay. right. I was three years before millennials. <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, it, it's this thought uh, that they're, you know, lazy or whatever. But this is the point where I don't know when this happened, when the turn was where everybody gets a trophy and oh. parents are are protecting and yeah. not letting them if they don't make oh, the team. Okay. It's so be it. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah. You win or you lose right. and not so cut and dry, but, right. but giving them the tools to get through it. My yeah. daughter didn't make the volleyball team. Yeah. She was surprisingly okay, but we had to keep ourselves from, oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, because you want to protect. Yeah. But when I grew up, it was put some freaking dirt on it. Right. You lost. Yeah. First, second, third. And right. it was. Right. But so I'm getting off topic a no, little no, bit. No, I mean, but, you're right. I mean, the thing is, is that it's, you know, things are going to hurt. Things are going to hurt, and we either try to prepare our children for that, or we just end up being um, reactive parents. I mean, reactive parenting sucks, <laughs> it, it, you know, because you're 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 you never know when something bad's going to happen. But when you've prepared for, as you know, I'm not saying you can per- sit down with your kiddo and prepare them for everything, but if you prepare them and just say, "Hey, listen, I don't know when it's going to happen or what it's going to look like, but someone is going to." kick you while you're already down and, you know, give them a very global response, like come to me, or if I'm not available, go to grandma, put your top five friends in your phone who, you know, will provide you with supportive, non-toxic messages, you know, and, and I think those, you know, that's the way that our kids build resilience, you know, is by having a plan and tools and coping skills, right? So any of us who have faced life through addiction or other maladaptive coping skills or suicidal thinking or whatever, it's probably because that was what we had to to work with, you know? Where, you know, where where was the class when we were in elementary school on when life has gone to shit, this is what you should do. I don't remember that class. Do you remember that no, class? No. That's the class we no need. Cliff's notes. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So And and I've just touched on social media again. Sure. We didn't grow up with that. We did not. You know what I mean? Nope. Like people wrote letters to each other and uh, but Snail when you mail. find out when you find out instantaneously, right. not only did I not make the volleyball team, but they're having a party. Right. With all the girls that did, right? You know, so it's got to be so hard to grow up, right? These days, right. You are know? you familiar so, with the marshmallow experiment? Yeah, yeah. somebody just someone just mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, just last week. Yeah, you know, oh, okay. Uh, waiting for do one now or do wait one for, now or wait for two later, yes. right? Essentially, and um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of that, you know, the marshmallow experiment predicts a lot of interesting things later in life. So what I'm worried about is that our children are developing into those kids who can't, even if they were born kids who may have waited for that two marshmallows, are we by the nature of innovation and the, you know, how rapidly we can access information, whether it's true or false information is irrelevant. It's the fact that we don't have to wait for it anymore. Are we evolving then into creatures. I mean, a lot of people will use uh, the term, you know, ar- you know, in terms of artificial intelligence, whether it's, um, you know, social media or some other thing that if interface that uses an algorithm to predict what we want, right? You know, you, you go into a shoe store and then all of a sudden there's ads for that shoe store on your Facebook stream. You know, our kids are, are going to be augmented 
if they aren't already. So that means that they won't actually be able to function without Google at some point. They won't actually be able to find out answers or critically think through how to solve a problem on their own without Googling it. Um, and I'm not plugging Google, whatever no, no, your sure. search no, engine no, no, no. is, you know. But, but I mean, um, this is like cocaine, alcohol. It, Right. So I mean, it the, is, the, what's it is firing in the brain, what's firing in the brain is that I have searched for something or I've looked at in my in my social media and it's that it's that casino effect, right? The lights and 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 I put in a nickel um and I got out 4 cents but I won. You know, <laughs> so I mean, with with social media, it's very similar. I I take forty five photos. Uh, there's the forty fifth one is is pleasing enough to me. I put it out there, and it just took me five minutes. And then within five minutes, I only have four likes. Oh so I put in five dollars. I got back two dollars, and you know, I so I didn't win. You know, and so it's it's really. Um, so how do we, you know, how do we work with our kids on the front end of all that? You know, um, that's there's a lot of communities dealing with how, you know, my recommendations are schools. I, I think, you know, I do a lot of work with schools and we do see differences in outcomes in schools that have cell phone policies between, you know, schools that do and don't. Um, I know it's hard to regulate, but a lot of teachers will in their own classrooms say, put, you know, put them, I don't want to see them out. Um, uh, but when schools do that, um, they are forcing the children to focus on um, what's going on in the school, and so it's 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 a difficult situation. Parents um, have to protect children's sleep and other you know important aspects of their life, um, and cell phones um, uh, or te- I should say tech because it could be a I suppose computer, a computer or whatever, or, yeah, you know, whatever it could be an iPad or something, a, an iPod. Um, those are um, the, those are major factors in our kids' um, inability to uh, to deal with stress because they're not sleeping enough, um, they're not disengaging enough, and they are actively looking for validation through um, something that's not not real. Right, and, yeah. and genetics. Me, for example, yeah. um, and the genetics in my family. Somebody that has experience with addiction or mental health, we have to try even harder because there's a good chance that there's kids are going to be instant gratification already prior to this. Because I know that my 10-year-old would be able to say, okay, well, I'll wait for two. I'll wait 15 minutes. But my oldest is just like me. Like, there's not a freaking chance. You are absolutely right. Give me the marshmallow and give it to me. Now our personalities are very genetic. I mean, yeah. everything about us is very genetic. Seventy percent. Yeah, you know, I mean, you throw stats out there, but I mean, it's huge. It's huge, and and what's interesting to me too is that you know parents will blame themselves sometimes and say, "Oh, I wasn't a good parent." And if you actually look at the literature on on genetics versus sort of environment and nature and nurture and that sort of thing, um, parents have a lot less a lot less influence than they think they have. Um, genetics are truly um, a um, a presiding factor over how a child will behave, how they will think, um, what they will do. And so it's, um, you know, a call to all parents. Yeah. Don't go around blaming yourself. I mean, we need to do, you know, we need to do things to set the stage for our kids to be successful. But, um, but yeah, that might be letting them fail, right? <laughs> um, so as we wrap up here, yeah. um, 
back to the schools. If okay. a school, I think this is just the Hope Squad thing is just unbelievable. If a school wanted to do this, yeah, what does that look like? Sure. Uh, it, you know, it, obviously it's a loaded question, but who do you talk to? How right. long does it take? Right. So for a Hope Squad in particular, um, if, if a school wants a Hope Squad and you are in the Cincinnati area, um, or if you are at the very like top of Kentucky, you know, the very northern part of Kentucky, um, and I think there's, there's probably about um, six or seven counties in this area, including Warren and Butler, um, then there is an organization called Grant Us Hope that has sort of the franchise on Hope Squads in this area, and they are at grantushope.org. If you are outside of that area and you want um, a Hope Squad, then you can contact um, Hope Squad through hopesquad.com. You're welcome to email me. Um, you're welcome to put my email and oh, other, I'll, I'll yeah, all, all my contact information, no cell phone, but sure. <laughs> contact no, yeah. information yeah. Um, um, and, and email me and then I can get folks connected. Um, but we, you know, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a rapidly growing program and I can, if I'm, a, if I'm allowed to uh, report out on the study that I just Absolutely. finished the first year on. So we just did the, uh, I, I am running a, a trial right now to look at um, the outcomes of schools with and without Hope Squads. And we just, this past school year was our very first year and I wasn't expecting to find much because in a year one of a program, it's implementation, getting everything off the ground. Um, but we had significant findings in terms of the impact on stigma. Um, schools with Hope Squads had significantly less stigma than schools without Hope Squad. And schools with Hope Squads had um, a trend of um, kids who were at the highest risk were getting to those trusted adults. And those are typically school counselors in schools, right? That's kind of the pathway for a child to get help. And that they were getting help that they needed aligned with their risk, and so that's and that we saw that um, trajectory in schools with Hope Squads more than we saw it in schools without Hope Squads, and so that's exactly what we want to find. So we are continuing that study, um, and uh, those are really positive findings that we're pretty excited about. So heck yeah, yeah. Well, you do great work. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, absolutely a trailblazer in this very heavy subject matter everybody needs to hear it and the fact that so many good things are being done hopefully it's saving lives as we speak so uh, i wish you continued success and uh, i'll put your stuff out there so people can contact you and uh, hope squad and, and everything else appreciate but, but it thanks for being here thanks trevor thanks for listening I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.